Hello and welcome to the Shaping Futures podcast. I'm Pratika Bagaria, a mentor to high school students to guide them onto a path of purpose and passion with the ultimate aim to help them get into their dream colleges. Through this podcast, we are interviewing change makers and experts in the field of education to inspire our young learners to take action and an active charge of their goals. Today, I have with us Megha and Minha, currently studying at Stanford, who saw a problem, found an opportunity, devised an innovative solution, and spent the winter of 2020 not taking classes, but giving classes instead. Thank you so much, Megha and Minha, for joining us today. Thank you for inviting us. Yeah, thank you. We're glad to be here. I mean, I mean, I want to start straight with what motivated you guys to put together the South Asian Winter Camp. And, uh, you know, Mika, if you want to go first. Okay, sure. Um, so basically, um, I, I think the motivation was really, as you said, we identified not so much a problem, but um, a feeling of there's something we can do right now instead of sitting at home feeling miserable all the time. And so Minha and I were just speaking to one another, keeping in touch as friends do. And we thought about how we're missing out on the school experiences that we really love um, and the classroom experience that has meant so much to us. And so we thought about how maybe at this time of remote learning, we could try and build a better classroom online. Yeah. And in particular, since we were both located in South Asia, we were seeing this momentous disruption um, across all levels of education. We thought about how we as college students could take some of the expertise we have um, just by virtue of being students and build a more interesting classroom experience for students. Um, and then in addition to that, it kind of evolved into adding mentorship components as well because alongside being outside of school, there's also this sense of uh, just a lot of instability and uncertainty. And it seemed like a very opportune and important time for younger people to meet with someone similar to them and receive some guidance. Yeah, Minha? Yeah, I think Minha's done a great job of um, yeah covering all the points, I think. For me, it was the fact that I live with my cousins in Pakistan. And so my you know, 10-year-old cousin who went from being top of her class all of a sudden was spending all day on YouTube because there was nothing else to do. Like she had read all um, and the household environment just wasn't set up to be academically, you know, um, academically sound. And so seeing her, I was like, you know, she can be doing something else right now. And so what is that something else? And I think after a lot of conversations, uh, Sokka was that something else. Yeah, and I mean, from uh, identifying that to going on to recruit course instructors and mentors from across the globe, I mean, we want to know so much about the logistics, the outreach plan, you know, how did you guys put it all together? And the idea is for our students to understand that if there is something they identify you just need the right direction to put together the pieces. So we really want to know about how you got so many people together for this one common mission. And Mina, if you would want to go first. 
Yeah, when we were writing our thank you letters to everyone who had been a part of SOC, like one of the lines we wrote is, is that it really takes a village to be able to put together a program like this. Um, and it, it did take a village and not only in terms of like we had a hundred um, over 100 mentors, we have 33 teachers, eight people who are organizing, but we also had entire teams of people who were just supporting us and guiding us in terms of, okay, do this, now do that, like people who were telling us at every stage based off their experiences um, of how we can best, you know, implement the program. And so I think in terms of getting that support, it was just one email away. All you do is you email people that you know would care about this and then ask them to email to other people. And we were all, you know, at home, everyone's sort of trying to navigate what it means like to be remote all the time and feeling this disconnection. So I think a lot of people were just ready to jump in. Um, and people who didn't have the time were still willing to at least set up one call to say, here's what I know about mentorship. Here's my experience in academics. Wow. And so mm -hmm. even people who don't have time end up making time for you, which is, which it was incredible. Yeah. Right, but I mean, uh, you you say this and you give a lot of credit to the people who are helping you out. But what I'm also noticing is the fact that you didn't hesitate to reach out. And uh, that's uh, definitely something that we keep talking to our students about also, that there are kind people out there who would want to help you. Uh, Megha, we would want to hear from you also. Yeah, I think, um... The main takeaway I had from this experience of reaching out to people who I honestly had no personal connection to going into it, um, but realized were just invaluable resources and so kind and giving with their time is that uh, at the end of the day, it's really um, just about thinking that when you have a good idea and a promising idea or even just like an inkling of an idea, um, people are really happy to talk to you about that. And if it's something that they care about um, and have had experience in, they know what it's like to be in your position, um, to be like kind of completely uncertain and uh, just venturing into something for the first time. And so they will be uh, charitable towards you and they will really often take you under their wing in a way that you might not have even asked them to do. So. I think just being a little bit brave and having some faith in your own idea, because um, if something is a good idea or a promising idea, everyone will see that. Absolutely, absolutely. And students, please, please believe us when we say that uh, just reach out, you know, when you have an idea. But, uh, you know, from there to genuinely putting together this excellent network, you know, right from Yale NUS to Delhi University, Ashoka, York, uh, you know, elite American universities, you guys put together a great network of students. How did you reach out, you know, how did it all work out? And you also had students attending, you know, various students attending from uh, South Asian countries. So two levels of questions here. One, that outreach plan, for your instructors and mentors uh, beyond guiding you as to how to put this plan, but genuinely the people who came on board. And number two, why specifically South Asia? Yeah, Mika. Yeah, so I think with the instructors, it was just a lot of grassroots outreach. So that means literally sending friends, acquaintances who uh, you might have known in high school or come across in college, um, just sending them a short message about what we were doing. We were doing this program where you can organize a class or serve as a mentor for South Asian youth. 
um, just sending them that and inviting them to the opportunity, there was just a lot of enthusiasm. So um, I think part of the job is really to reach out into your personal network and start somewhere. Yeah. And word of mouth is really effective, especially when it's something that's um, you know, based around human relationships and teaching a skill or a area of interest you have to someone else. And then in addition to that, we kind of uh, played around on social media. So we tried to build a strong Instagram presence uh, where we introduced ourselves as members of the team and expressed why we think Salk is a good idea in order to hopefully persuade more people to join our mission. Um, and in addition to that, we tried to reach out to similar organizations in different universities. So yeah. a lot of universities have South Asian student networks. Um, some of them have more education focused projects. And so we kind of um, messaged them on Instagram or Facebook and said, you know, this might be something interesting to your members. And it was actually really effective. So one of the benefits of being fully online was that everyone was kind of always checking social media right. and looking for a way to spend their time and so you just had to be at that right place to grab people's attention. Brilliant and Minha? Yeah and I think that you know it's not always the people closest to you that will end up being a part of you know any mission that you have and so like don't be discouraged if for example your best friend doesn't have the time to help you but everyone can take out the time to be able to like forward it to one more person and I feel like you know when I reached out to a lot of friends some of them had exams some of them couldn't help but they were like okay I'll send it to like five of my friends and then friends of friends all like you know and it keeps going end up actually becoming part of the team and so it's it can be discouraging, I think, at times when you think that, oh, the people closest to me should be the ones who are most involved. Yeah. Sometimes that happens, sometimes it doesn't. Um, but the point is, is that everyone can forward them forward a message, right? And so really just asking people like, okay, I understand if you can't be a part of this, but can you send it to five other people? Right. Um, and right. people be surprised at how far your own network stretch, I think. Lovely, excellent. And Minha, why South Asia? I want to understand that genuinely. Yeah, so um, I'm I'm from Pakistan. Megha was living in India at the time, and um, still is. <laughs> um, and yeah, we we had realized that a lot of the initiatives that we had been a part of on campus were very U.S. centric because we go to um, school in the U.S. And you know, we had a lot of experience in terms of just like different educational programs and you know public service initiatives but most of them are always us based and so we found ourselves in this interesting like space where both of us even though we're still university students are at home in yeah. different yeah. south asian countries and so we were like you know why why not start something at home um especially because i think there was a disproportionate impact of the pandemic on south asian countries um, that we're still seeing today. So I think it was just, it was this feeling of like, we want to do something for our own homes. Um, and then also a feeling of like, we're seeing, we're living and seeing um, the struggle that the pandemic has caused. Right, right. Mega, would you want to add something there? No, I think um, it has captured it perfectly. It's like, I think service um, starts at home. I think people say that. And I, I think it has to be true because it's the community you feel very connected to that you find the energy and inspiration. And I think even expert, or not expert understanding, but at least familiarity to serve. Right. And um, I think uh, it was just really rewarding to be able to be at home um, and very privileged, I think, given just the immense amount of suffering going on to like help 
people who were from nearby, but also quite far away, like people yeah. who were in different country. I had never visited Bangladesh before, but you know, I my mentor, I mentored a student and she's from Bangladesh. And so it was a really rewarding kind of cross-cultural experience at a time when we were all trapped at home. So it was a surprise, a pleasant surprise, I think. Lovely. And, you know, this is something, again, we speak to our students about very often that uh, before you start thinking about what I can do somewhere else, why don't we start at home? And uh, that definitely resonates with us uh, uh, in terms of familiarity, in terms of having a deeper connection, deeper motive, more passion to be able to pull through those hours and those extra initiatives that you're putting in. So definitely uh, something to note, uh, guys. And uh, that brings me to my next question, which is your course instructors, your mentors were all college students themselves. And what, in your opinion, was the impact they were able to make on young learners? Uh, we often have, the reason I ask you this is because when we encourage students to go out there, teach their siblings, their younger siblings, cousins, uh, you know, kids around, they often say that, what do, what do I know? You know, what do I know uh, that I'll be able to teach someone? And uh, I want to hear your take on this because you guys have seen this firsthand. Uh, Megha? Yeah, I mean, I think um, there's two parts, I guess, of, to the answer I would give. The first is that all the teachers ended up teaching just amazing classes. Yeah. I, um, had like the portion to be on call, which means in case there was a problem, I would just be online helping with tech stuff. And so that meant I got to sit in on so many classes and I would have given anything as um, a young adult to have uh, had access to someone uh, who clearly loves what they're studying and is really intent on making that um, accessible to other students, to have someone like that teach me. So I think it was actually distinctly beneficial to have these college students teaching because they remember what it's like to be um, the age of most of the participants of SOC. And they are honestly also in Zoom classes right now. So they were kind of learning by experience and then being able to innovate on their experience to make something better, which I think uh, worked out really well. Brilliant. Uh, Minha? Yeah, so when we were choosing instructors and in our application, um, we actually didn't ask for a resume and we didn't ask for area expertise. So we didn't say that like you need to have been studying the subject for the last 10 years of your life in order to teach it. Um, we didn't even ask people to, you know, lock in what they wanted to teach. We said, if you care about any subject, sign up and then we'll work with you on it. And so a lot of the people who were coming in were like, you know, I really love English literature, but you know, I'm not an expert. And we were like, yeah, we don't expect you to be. We expect you to be prepared, but we don't expect you to be an expert because if we wanted an expert classroom, we would be getting, you know, teachers who've been teaching for many years. But the point of the classroom was that it's built on this shared passion for the subject. And so we invited teachers who just loved what they were studying or loved what they wanted to teach. And then we said, let's work together to be able to do enough research, to be able to prepare enough to have a really quality classroom. And I think that that's really, you know, something that, a lot of students don't realize this is that like you don't have to be the yeah. best at something in order to contribute to it be prepared like don't come in and just like yeah. you know make it up on the spot be prepared but you don't have to already have that knowledge you can always seek it wow that's that's so interesting to know i had no idea 
about uh, the vetting process of bringing the course instructors and mentors on board and uh, shared passion was uh, the one common metric that you guys put together. And uh, I was going through some of your courses right from um, gender to Bollywood to, you know, this absolutely incredible variety of courses that were being offered. Were you guys always thinking about, uh, or probably sometimes thinking about, will students opt for this? Will they take such classes? Uh, should we even offer uh, these abstract classes, you know, because uh, the reason I ask again is because when we are speaking to high school students and encouraging, uh, encouraging them to take summer programs, the one question we often get asked is, hey, but I don't plan to study this. You know, why do I take a class in cinema when I'm clearly majoring in physics, right? So I just want to understand a little bit of how you guys put together those courses. Uh, Minha? Yeah, so I think there's like multiple different ways to answer this question. The first is that when you're going to build a passion-based classroom, then the teacher's passion, whatever it is, you have to support it. And so if yeah. you look at our like list of courses, there like we didn't actually preempt any of these we didn't plan for any of them we just you know we said what do teachers want to teach and we facilitated them which is why you know some people are like why don't you have a 50 50 ratio between stem and non-stem the answer is because we we didn't have a ratio for anything okay. if you want to teach it um and the second thing that we did is is that we did do a pre-design survey with our students and so what that means is that before we actually created the classrooms we did focus groups and interviews and um surveys with over 100 students to say, okay, if you had the chance to learn anything, what would that be? And those answers, once we got them, we compiled them into a report, and then we gave that to our teachers and said, we're not telling you to teach these subjects. We're just showing you the general subjects that students are interested in learning in, the general thoughts they have about subjects, um, their experiences in the classroom, et cetera. And so that really guided teachers in saying, okay, I see generally people don't feel like they've been able to talk about gender, or they feel like you know these are the different areas that they, they haven't been able to talk about, but really care about, or aren't part of the curriculum, but really care about. And so even though that wasn't the sole deciding factor, it did give them information from the student side before they locked in um, a class. Right. The final thing is just that our classrooms were meant to not replace academic learning, not replace the school environment, but to supplement it, to say that, you know, in South Asia, both Megha and I have studied in the system, like we know that there are limited subjects that you are able to opt in for. And those subjects would always cover all of your diverse interests. And so we're not saying we're here to teach you math and English and science right. and all those subjects. We're here to say, if you care about something beyond that as well and haven't had a chance to learn it, like come learn it now. And so I think that mentality of like, there are different parts of you there are different interests in you that school cannot cover so do it you know and even from a college um perspective like that's always seen as a strength not as a weakness makeup no i think minha summarized everything really well um like her first two points mentioned it was a mix of trying to accommodate teacher interests because they just clearly really cared about what they were planning on teaching and also just allowing them to keep in mind that um, there is an audience and uh, like the co-learners in this process are students. So let's try and think about what they actually care about as well. And then I think the third stage, this idea that this isn't meant to be school 2.0, like this is not <laughs> meant to be like an academic club or anything. It's just meant to be something for your personal enrichment. I think that was a really key element. And I think one thing that allowed for that was that the program was completely free. Um, and so it 
meant that the students who signed up uh, didn't have to keep in mind, like, what will I get in exchange for this? Because unfortunately, sometimes that's what paid programs end up becoming. Uh, so they could kind of just go in there and say, I have a few hours on Saturday. I want to talk about cinematography with these kids from other countries. And, uh, you know, that, that makes me wonder a little more about your mentoring program. And uh, again, I'll explain the reason why I ask. When I started out with my mentoring services, the only thought I had in mind was I, if I could be the mentor that I didn't have in school or I wish I had in school, you know, maybe I'll have some value to add. And there were obviously these doubts as well, right, about uh, the fact that I'm just, I mean, now I'm 29 years old. I started when I was 27. What will I teach? You know, how will I guide and why will anyone listen to me? So when you guys were putting together your mentorship program, what were some of those things you kept in mind? And what is the impact you saw on the kids? Because you guys were in and out of those classrooms. You guys were mentors yourselves, uh, you know, to kids. We want to know more, more about, um, you know, how you devised your mentoring programs and the impact it created on your audience. And Meghai, you could go first. Yeah, um, absolutely. So in terms of devising the mentorship program, uh, I think Minha was just more heavily engaged with this aspect of things, but I think the preliminary answer was that we wanted mentors to feel supported going into this. We didn't want them to feel like because you signed up to be a mentor, you have to be perfect and give everyone just absolutely true and accurate advice, even if you actually are still figuring things out yourself. And so what really helped with that was doing a lot of research going in um, as to what mentorship models work and what effective culturally relevant mentorship um, should keep in mind. And then using that research to develop a workbook, which every single mentor and mentee received. And um, the purpose of the workbook was to give um, the mentorship pairings some resources, um, activities, and guiding questions that they could work through together in order to make sure they um, have something to talk about and so that they can feel like they're having a more structured mentorship experience without having to draw too much on um, potential experience that they might not uh, have had in the past. Right. Minha? And I think something really valuable about the mentorship workbook was that both mentor and mentee had their own copy that they had to fill out on their own um, and sitting together. And what that means is, is that the mentor is not coming in saying like, I'm gonna give you all the answers to your questions or I'm gonna tell you exactly where your life should go, but saying that I'm also going to sit with you while we both figure out our own lives. Um, and so that was really nice because for example, if there's like a career test as one of the activities, like the mentor is taking that career test, the mentee is taking it. And then they're saying, oh, I got doctor or oh, I got like, astronaut right and they're talking about that right and so it's it was a very nice like environment to be able to say we're both learning what who we are and where we want to be um and especially because like our ages weren't very different than our mentees ages we're like maximum what five six years older 
it all figured out, neither do they, and that, that's okay. And so I think the role of the mentor was really one of a moderator who would like, you know, ease the silences, be there as a resource. So if a mentee had a question, let's say a mentee is from Sri Lanka and the mentor is from India. Um, if the mentee has a question about Sri Lankan universities, the mentor doesn't have the answers, but the mentor can find out what the answers are, right. you know, and I think tapping into the network that SOC already had built or just Googling the answers, you know, saying, okay, I will do some research on what your questions are was really valuable. Um, and so the mentees were, after every session, were mandated to give the mentors some homework. And that homework could be like, find the top three universities in my country, or you know, help me figure out what different requirements um, I need in order to pursue X, Y, Z, right? And so it was it sort of like flipped the model where the mentor is not telling the mentee what to do, but the mentee is saying, I need help. Like, can you help me? Um, and so it was it was a really great environment. I think that mentorship was able to like connect people from all over the world to sort of question very similar things. This is incredible, you know, an incredible way to keep the mentor, uh, you know, on her toes. And uh, I, I genuinely resonate with this, too, because, you know, there are sometimes uh, questions that I get asked and I don't have the answers to and I excuse myself for a day to find those answers and then there's this drive to really find that answer and you know come back and it just pushes everyone to do better and be better and this is an incredible model that you guys put together and it's definitely going to help our students you know who are listening to this. Uh, moving to a little more different context now about your program which is the fact that you guys uh, planned this, executed it, everything online and I'm sure there has been a ton of learning for you guys in terms of you know reflection after the program as to what you guys did right what you guys could do better and we really want to know some of those experiences of yours so that our listeners who are probably planning some projects of their own could learn from these incredible experiences of you know your project and Mina if you could go first please. Yeah, so we actually did a very extensive evaluation process after the winter camp was over. And so I'll just like share some of the things that students and teachers shared about the online experience. Um, the first was that SOC was a very different environment than your average school classroom. And the reason that is, is that it was intentionally built to be online. School was forced into the online space, but SOC was created in the online space. And what that means is, is that like we, we knew what we were dealing with coming into it. Um, and we we made those sort of necessary changes to the model to be able to accommodate for this online sphere. And so I think that that's like this intentionality of saying, I'm coming to the online space. How can I optimize it is really important as, as opposed to saying like, oh, no, the online is always going to be inferior to real life because it's not always inferior. SOC could not have happened in person. We had 400 students from like six, five different countries. You know, like it's it's not going to happen in person without like millions of dollars in funding. And, you know, that that's a lot. Um, and I think another thing is, is that we don't realize that even though online learning, of course, has its drawbacks, um, it also has a lot of pros in the way that people who, you know, would not have been able to get a visa, would not have been able to get parental permission, would not have been able to leave the house, you know, um, the cost of the program would have been so much higher. There's so many different barriers to being able to participate that we didn't meet because all you needed was your cell phone um, and an internet connection. And so I think right. like the strengths of the online sphere, there are so many barriers you just don't have to deal with. Um, <clears throat> with regards to the cons, of course, like some people had internet that would cut out or load shedding, you know, the electricity is gone for a couple of hours and then you're stuck. And so there are, of course, drawbacks, but I think that the barriers we overcame um, really just made me value the online sphere so much more. 
Brilliant, uh, Mika. Yeah, I fully agree. I think in terms of access and equity, uh, the online space has so much potential and I'm so glad in a sense that we were forced to contend with it um, this time around. And I think uh, going forward, what could be better um, is probably just uh, thinking more now that we've had this experience um, behind us as to what are um, further best practices for engaging people when they're online and for promoting um, just more equitable participation in classroom discussions. So right now there's like a lot of research happening about who participates in Zoom classes, who feels comfortable online speaking up. And so I think going forward, just keeping in mind what these insights are when trying to make sure everyone participates, everyone has their, um, you know, unmutes themselves if possible and says something, feels the sort of confidence to do that. Um, I think that will be important to keep in mind. Yeah. Uh, but I think we also did all right on that end uh, in that people felt generally very comfortable on these classes, even though these were all relative strangers, they were happy to discuss some uh, quite uh, personal and sometimes tricky topics with one another. And I think part of that is just uh, building the right culture. So it's like a mix of technology and planning on the part of the teacher. That's incredible to know because, you know, when we also plan our sessions and workshops online, the biggest, uh, you know, point comes down to will students put their videos on or no? You know, because even for someone conducting the class from their perspective, they just need more faces, right, to be able to engage with their audience and uh, it's so incredible what you guys put together where uh, complete strangers were comfortable to you know come uh, forward and talk about their lives and this has been incredible learning for our audience for me and we would like some advice some tips from you for students who often see problems around them but feel they're too young or too inexperienced to take action and that's that's a conversation we have every day with students you know just it's it's not that you can't do it you can and we want to hear it from you because you've done this yourself and megha yeah i think uh, you put it well the answer is that you can do it you can do things that were literally a figment of your imagination um, 10 months ago and have them be this real entity in the world. And I think it'll continue to surprise you what you can do even after you've done it. But I think entering, in, entering into it with this right mindset that, um, you know, people in the past have also begun from really simple ideas or a short conversation with their friends and managed to turn um, their idea into something that they really cherish and that means something to other people. Uh, just le learning from that example and not um, excluding yourself from that possibility is the first step. And then pre preparing a lot as much as you can, because um, I think there's like a quote that says, um, nothing diminishes anxiety faster than action. And I think taking the right sort of preparatory action is um, like exactly what you need to feel both comfortable taking action and also making sure you're going about it in an ethical, informed and sensitive manner. Thank you for that, Minha. Minha? 
I completely agree. So first of all, of course, anybody who wants to do anything can do it. it but I think one element that's often, um, you know, overlooked is the preparation. So do your preparation. And so like SOC was three weeks long, but we planned it for what, nine months? Um, you know, it, it took a while, you know, you're not just going to end up at this like one outcome without all the preparation. And of those nine months, the couple, like the first couple of months were just research, like reading about what mentorship is, reading about what classroom dynamics are good. We put together handbooks. We we sat in front of this like screen, just reading people's experiences for a very long time. Mika and I would meet with a new person um, in the field, like almost every single day to say like, here's what we're thinking. What do you think? think. Um, and all of that advice didn't have to stick. You know, if we disagreed with something that someone said, that's okay, but we learned from it, right? And right. Um, there were certain things that you learn beforehand, which like are really valuable later on. For example, a lot of our um, just like supporters were like, you know, if you enroll 20 students, about 10, per, 10 of them will show up. So there's almost always 50% attrition and the literature supports that, people's experiences support that. And so when we were taking in um, people into the program, we were able to offer more, more spots in the program because we knew that 50% people will always drop off. It wasn't like, oh my God, 50% people are dropping off. No, like that always happens. That's okay. That's not failure. Um, and you will prepare for it. Exactly. We wouldn't have known if we weren't prepared for it. So I think if you want to do something, don't just start doing it, start researching it, reach out to people, have conversations, um, Google it, you know, but get prepared, I think. Excellent. I mean, guys, thank you so, so much. This has been incredible information. Generally, after every podcast, you know, we take out one or two lines which uh, stand to be the highlight of the conversation. It's going to be incredibly difficult to do at this time because practically everything you guys have put together has been just so very valuable. Thank you once again for your time. And uh, we really hope that SOC becomes an inspiration to more and more and more people and there can be a lot more incredible learning like this going forward. Awesome. Thank you for inviting us to this space. It's, it's incredible. Yeah, thank you so much for speaking with us. Um, it's been really fun. Thank you. Thank you so much.